Today we continue our study on um, the prodigal God, and we are going to look at the compassionate father. And this is really why the book does that little turn of the title on us. And some of you early on went, what's that, prodigal God? What's that all about? Almost seems heretical, offensive. Because when we think of prodigal, we think of the characteristic of the son who was rebellious. But that's actually not what the word means. Prodigal means spending all, spending everything recklessly. And today we're going to see why that term actually very appropriately describes the Father, because he spent everything for us to forgive us. The one thing that everyone knows this parable is about, if they don't understand anything else, they know that it's about forgiveness. And so that's what we're focusing on today, and we're going to learn through the actions of the Father what the nature of true forgiveness is. And just as Jesus was communicating to his listeners, both the righteous, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and the unrighteous who were there, the sinners and the tax collectors as they're described, just as Jesus was communicating to them a new type of community, that grace and the kingdom of God is meant to bring forth just as he was communicating a new understanding of what it meant to be lost and separated from the Father. He's also communicating a new understanding of what forgiveness is. So we're going to look at that. Then we're going to look at how that works through Christ and the cost of our forgiveness in the cross. And then we're going to look at what it would mean to be a compassionate, gospel-centered, grace driven community at the journey. So we start with the first area, and that is a new understanding of forgiveness. And what we're going to learn from the Father's actions is that there's four pieces to true forgiveness, uh, four descriptors of it. The first is that it's assertive. The second, it is sacrificial. The third, it's only possible if it comes from within. It's empowered by our hearts. And the fourth is true forgiveness leads to resurrection. So the first uh, we're going to look at is that true forgiveness is assertive. But let's go back to this text again. Luke chapter 15, we're going to start at verse 11 and read through to 24. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. We haven't really mentioned this, but remember, this is Jew now feeding pigs. Very unclean. This is a, this is a, a boy that, as a result of his decisions, has fallen that far from his heritage and his culture. Let's keep reading. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and I will go to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. And so he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. 
And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quickly, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and party. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. All right, so let's look at this compassionate father, this uh, vision of a God who is willing to sacrifice in order to restore us. So the first thing we learn about true forgiveness from the actions of the father is that it's assertive. Forgiveness is assertive. And what I mean by that is that it takes the initiative. Let me, let me ask you a question. What would you think if you were this father? And you were standing on your porch, and the son that had taken literally a third of your property, squandered it, had disappeared, had, had shamed you in front of a culture that was totally honor-based. We, we don't quite get the culture in which this story takes place, because in the American culture, we believe in individuality, individualism. But in this culture, honor was everything. If you had been shamed and dishonored and your son that had disgraced you suddenly was coming back and you saw him coming, what might you think if you were in a normal state of mind? He wants more. Let's admit it, our our trust has been shattered and broken. But without even knowing what the son was even thinking or what he ever intended to say. This is very important. We know eventually the son begins to apologize, but the father, without even knowing what the son was going to do, runs to him, and the Greek language says he falls on his neck, and he begins to kiss him. He doesn't make the son beg for it. Even without the son's apology, he's already forgiving. That's really an important thing for us to see. He's the one that goes. In this culture, it is always the lesser that goes to the greater. What would have been appropriate would be for him to stand on the porch and wait for his son to come. Instead, he went to him. He took the action. This is so important that you get this, that the father began to forgive the son long before the son began to verbalize his repentance. See, true forgiveness takes the first step. In Mark chapter 11, Jesus talked about when you're standing praying before the Father, if there is someone who has hurt you, you need to forgive them. I'm assuming all of us have experienced betrayal and hurt, some of us in very significant ways. Many of us, our our normal action is just to sit back. We're not going to take a step to forgive, nor do we feel obliged to take a step to forgive unless they come to us. Jesus indicates through this parable, as well as through Mark 11, that we need to forgive anyway. In Matthew 18, Jesus says, if you have a brother who has offended you, you need to go to him and make it right. And if you do that, you'll you'll save a brother. Matthew 5, Jesus says, if you stand at the altar ready to give sacrifice and you have offended someone. So in this case, you are the offender and someone has something against you, you need before you dare to offer sacrifice. The Father says, I won't receive that worship. I won't receive this act of devotion 
unless you've made things right. So here's the important bottom line here. If the fault's yours, and if the fault isn't yours, the move is always yours. It's always our responsibility to make things right. If we're victims of harm, if we're the ones that caused harm. Scripture says it doesn't matter. Our responsibility to make things right is not dependent on the other person. The Father demonstrates that to us. That's not what we do. We stand on our porches. We wait. Jesus says, my love takes the initiative. The second thing we see about true forgiveness is besides it being assertive, is that it's sacrificial. There's two ways that the Son has wronged the Father. The first is that he's robbed him. He's diminished his entire net worth, not just his current net worth, but his ability to continue to grow his net worth for future generations. The son, literally, before it was due him, took a third of the father's wealth and just spent it, squandered it. The second way that he has wronged the father is to have disgraced him. Remember, again, we're in an honor culture. What this son did was to so damage the father's standing in his community, the father's social capital. The father would never recover from this. And the shame to the father in this culture was probably even more devastating than the stolen resources. So when we see the son come to the father, it's it's very interesting to see what he does. The first thing he does is he comes and says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So the son does the appropriate thing in that culture. He grovels in the best way that he can to recognize the damage to his father's honor. But then he says, make me a worker. Make me one of your workers. And as we learned a few weeks ago, his clear intent there is to pay the father back. So the son's intention is to acknowledge the wrong he has done to the father and as best as he can to try to fix it. But here's the key. His father won't let him. What does the father do? First thing the father does is instead of the son groveling, instead of waiting, the father goes to the son, runs to the son. What did he have to do in order to run to him? He had to gather his garments up and kind of hold them high so he could run. That's what you had to do in that culture. Children did that. Women did that. But the men never did that. It was considered a dishonorable thing. For nothing alone except that he had to bare his ankles in order to do it. But the father gladly takes on the humility, ignoring his reputation. What does he do after that? The son is going to say to him, make me one of your servants. And before he can even get it out, the father says, quickly, go and get the best robe, put it on my son and put the ring on his finger. Let me just describe what those are to understand the significance of this. The father is restoring the son without any question back to his place in the family. The best robe in the house was certainly the father's robe. It was the one that he put on when he went out into this culture of honor. It was the father's very robe that he takes and puts on this rebellious, broken son. And he puts the ring on his finger. That ring was the family seal. 
It was what you wore when you were conducting business for the family. So in giving this younger son both the robe and the seal, he's saying to the son, I fully restore you without condition. I could picture him saying, okay, you're going to be a part of this family, but there's going to be some limitations. But what he's saying to the son is, you're so completely restored that from now on when you speak, it's as though I speak. That is huge. What is the father doing? Think about this. This is probably the most important thing for us to understand true forgiveness today. The father is fully absorbing the debt. He is saying to this son, you don't have to pay back. You see, when somebody harms someone else, a debt is always created. Relationally, physically, financially, emotionally, there's always a debt that's created. And the options are two. Either they need to pay or I need to pay. But someone needs to pay. What Jesus is teaching us is that real forgiveness requires our absorbing the pain. If I'm requiring that person to pay, then I'm lost in bitterness and the need for justice, and I will never be able to offer true life-giving forgiveness. This is radical for Jesus' teaching in his time, but it's also, I think, radical for most of us. To truly forgive somebody is to personally absorb the debt. And what that means is that when there's true forgiveness, when I'm going to offer true forgiveness, that always costs me. There's always a degree of pain. The seeking of justice, the seeking of revenge leads us down a path of death. This forgiveness moves us towards a path of life and grace, not just for the person that we're offering forgiveness to, but for our very selves. What do we do? We stand on our porch. We look for justice. We cry out for restitution. How do we change who we are as people in order that we can forgive the way Jesus is suggesting? Well, that's the third point. This kind of forgiveness is the miracle type of forgiveness. And the only way it can happen is from the inside out. It has to be powered by what's going on inside our hearts. The story says that the father saw the boy coming. And it says that he felt what? What's the word? Filled with compassion. Really important word. Someone did a study on the emotional life of Jesus. All the words that are describing Jesus' emotions and feelings in the Gospels. You know what the number one word used was? This very Greek word that Jesus is using about the Father. Compassion. You see, the Gospels are just filled with it. And that Greek word means to be moved from the depths of our being to act in love towards someone. Jesus is using his signature emotion and saying that's what the Father had towards the Son, and that's what we need to learn to have towards one another. Let me ask you this question. What has the Father been doing in his heart all these months while the Son has been away? What do you think the Father has been doing all this time? What would we be doing? I'll tell you what I've done in the past when I've been hurt. There's a tape player in my heart that's set on instant rewind and replay over and over and over again. And 
I'm constantly replaying the hurt done to me. And I'm guessing you do too. Not only that, I'm constantly rehearsing what I'd do if I had the chance to get justice. I'm rehearsing what I'd say. Sometimes, for instance, in the shower, I will actually verbalize what I'd say to them, knowing no one else is around, but somehow in the shower it has that echoey effect and it feels very powerful. (laughs) That's what we do. We clobber the person that hurt us in our heart over and over and over again. We practice that. No wonder when given the opportunity to make things right, for some of us, there's a degree of anger in that. I've, I've witnessed people who, when someone comes to them who has harmed them and says, I need to make things right, actually be as mad about that <laughs> as the original hurt. Why is that? There's something feeding us in that bitterness that we get so used to, becomes so much a part of our life story, that when someone comes who says, I, I want to make things right, we're not prepared. What we really want to do is clobber that person. So let me ask you again, what do you think the father was doing all those months while the son was gone that enabled him when the son came to be filled with compassion, humble himself to run without fear of his own reputation, to fall on his son and kiss his neck? What do you think he'd been doing for months? Yeah. I think for months he was seeing himself falling on his son and kissing him. And so when the son came, it happened because he attuned his heart to that opportunity. We imagine justice. We replay the wrong. God calls us to offer compassion and forgiveness. We need to absorb the anger and the pain. We need to pray for them. We need to will good for them. The fourth thing about forgiveness that we see here, it's assertive, it's sacrificial. It involves absorbing pain, absorbing the debt. It is sacrificial. It has to come from a working of our heart outward. The fourth thing that we see when true forgiveness is offered is that there's always resurrection. Forgiveness leads to resurrection. The father says, let's party Because this son of mine who was lost is found. He was dead. Now he's alive again. He was dead to the family. He was dead to the relationship with the father, just like you and I are. True forgiveness brings that back to life. So I want you to think about this on two levels. We'll talk about the the first one I'm going to mention in just a couple minutes, and that is that that's what the father's forgiveness has done for you and I. Those of us that have come to faith in Christ, we've received Jesus as our Savior, we have moved from that position of being dead in terms of relationship to the Father to being his sons and daughters, to being alive again. But just as important in terms of our relationships with each other in the body and with the world around us is that you and I have that same power. We, by virtue of moving compassionately and offering true forgiveness to people, have the power to rebirth relationships, to bring life to dead possibilities, heal broken hearts. We can exercise forgiveness and grace in the way that the Father does to his sons. And in doing that, life all around us can blossom. So we are all going to be harmed. It's also true that we are 
all of us going to unjustly harm others at some point in our life. But let's just talk about how we respond when we're harmed. We are all going to be harmed. How you respond to that harm is either in a way that feeds the bitterness and therefore moves towards brokenness in your own life and ultimately to propagating death, or it moves towards restoration of your own spirit, and in the best case scenario, restoration of broken relationships with the one who has wronged you. But even if that doesn't happen, you're going to breathe life into your spirit and to your context by learning to be compassionate and to offer true forgiveness. Now, let's look at this from the deeper meaning for Jesus himself. Jesus is helping us understand how the Father in heaven did the very things that the Father of the lost sons did to bring restoration, but through Jesus himself. In the parable, the Father humbles himself. He bears his ankles. He bears his legs. He goes running to the Son. He comes to the Son. How does the Father bring grace to us? God comes to us in Christ. John 1, he who was God, in the beginning with God and was God, he was in the world. He came to his own, John said, and his own received him not. You see, this is a powerful story of what God was doing at that very moment Jesus was telling the story through Christ himself. The father in the story goes to his son. God comes to us in Christ. The father humbles himself in order to bring restoration. God in Christ fully humbles himself. Doesn't just bare his legs. He is stripped naked and impaled on a cross. He doesn't just lose some dignity. He relinquishes his glory. He doesn't just throw his arms around us in love. He holds them out, and he is hung on a cross. Philippians 2, Christ humbled himself and became obedient to death on the cross. What was Christ doing? He was absorbing our debt. He was paying for the debt of our sin. Either you and I have to pay for it, or God has to pay for it, and God chose to do it in Christ. In the same way that the Father does all of that, and then when the Son comes, the Father rejoices over him and parties over him because he was lost and he's found. For those of us that have received Christ as Savior, we have that same confidence that there will come a time when our Father enfolds us, when he falls on us in love and welcomes us, and celebrates us. One of the most precious images of that moment is in this very remote prophet by the name of Sephaniah. I would guess very... In fact, how many of you have ever read the book in the Bible, Zephaniah? Yeah. That's why he's called a minor prophet. He's not on the top ten list. Zephaniah predicts the downfall of Israel, the judgment. He 
predicts the restoration once they have suffered and returned to the Lord. He pictures God restoring his people to himself. And then this is what he describes in the third chapter, verse 17. The Lord your God is now with you, and he is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love, and then he will rejoice over you with singing. He rejoices over us, and there will be a time when we hear the glorious voice of God celebrating who we are as his children. Someone commented, well, the gospel's not really in this parable. Oh, but it is. It is. We were lost and found. God took the initiative in Christ. He came to us. He humbled himself. He absorbed the debt so that he could fall on us with forgiveness and grace. What does that mean now for us in our spiritual community here? If we were going to be a compassionate community in the same way our Heavenly Father in this story is shown to be a compassionate father, I want to suggest three things. The first is that we would be perpetually living in a spirit of reconciliation, never allowing things to be wrong with one another. There would be no buildup. There would be no grudge. There would be no breakdown in relationships. Because if we understood the true heart of forgiveness, we would always be taking steps to make sure that we're right with one another. But we don't. We struggle because we have grudges, and grudges build up. Let me just give you a simple test to know if you have a grudge. So you could think about people that have harmed you over the years. Maybe you feel like you've forgiven them. How do you know if you still have a grudge? Here's a very simple test. If you know that their failure and misfortune would bring some satisfaction, (laughs) and you still got a grudge, we say, oh, no, I don't have anything against them. But yet... We break relationships. We were once close, now we're not. We don't talk. We pretend everything is okay, but it's not. You see, in a gospel community, that doesn't happen. That is just silent death. That's all that is. In a gospel community, we take the initiative. We know that we are responsible no matter who has done the harming. Each of us is responsible to take the assertive step of offering grace compassionately. And that is one of the ways that we are set apart from culture around us. It's one of the key things that should mark us, as Jesus said, as those who love one another. Second, outside of the spiritual community, a compassionate church would treat people with generosity and compassion instead of villainizing them, belittling them, and berating them. One of the great tragedies of our culture that Christians have somewhat contributed to is that when we have an opponent politically, morally, philosophically, we tend to create a one-dimensional caricature of them so that we can portray them as evil. (laughs) Like, all the problems of the world are, are, are those people. For instance, someone lies to you. 
you create a one-dimensional caricature of that person as a what? What are they from that point on? They're a liar. They're summarized by that act. So when someone asks you, do you lie? You say, well, yeah, I do. Well, why do you lie? And then you answer for yourself, well, it's complicated. (laughs) I didn't really mean to, or you have to understand all the different things going on in my life. You see, we understand that we're coming from a lot of different layers inside us. But when the other person does it, we remove all that, and we just create a one-dimensional caricature of them. For three months before every election, everybody on the opposing side is a fool or an idiot or a hate monger. As Christians, this should never be true of us. We should always be able to interact with people around us in a considerate, compassionate way. That spirit of belittling and spinning and name-calling should never mark a believer. And by God's grace, will never be something we do here at the journey. We live in a state of reconciliation with one another. We live in a relationship of respect and courtesy and grace with the world around us. And then finally, to be a compassionate community requires, calls us to set people free from their pasts. What God has done in grace is to replace all of our pasts with Christ's past. When you are in Christ, it's no longer what you have done. It's what Christ has done. And so we need to offer that same grace to one another. We need to allow people to move forward in this newness of life. The cross demands this of us. The love of God requires no less of us. Well, that's what this parable teaches us about ourselves and about forgiveness, about the Father's act and sacrifice of forgiving us, and therefore what he calls us to do in forgiving one another. Remember what Paul said? Forgive one another as in Christ God forgave you.